0: Bismillah Rahman Rahim, Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alamin, Wasadallah, who was Sadlam, Wabarakala, Sayyidina, Muhammadin, or Alihi, Wa Sahbihi, or Sadlam, Allahumma Alimna, Mayan Faruna, Wanfarna Bima Alamtana, Wasidna, Minfodrica, Inman Water Alima, In Naka Allah, Kulisha, and Kodirubat. Alhamdulillah, we've now reached lesson fifty five. And last week we were discussing some of the important points and reflections on the mithaq of Medina, the covenant that was drawn up and taken between the Prophet the Arab tribes and the Jewish tribes. So we spoke about that and how those three Jewish tribes even ended up in Medina in the first place. And then we ended with the story of one of their own, Hussain ibn Salam, who came to be known as Abdullah ibn Salam, who converted to Islam. So we're still in the first year after the hijrah of the Prophet wasallam to Medina. And we need to speak about the reception of these Jewish tribes to the Prophet wasallam. Remember we have three Jewish tribes and we have two major Arab tribes, the Aus and the Khazraj. So we have five in total. Now we add in the Muhajirun and we have six different groupings. But the Aus and the Khazraj were rapidly becoming Muslim. The Ansar being of the Aus and the Khazraj were quickly becoming one solidified group where you have now the the Ansar and the Muhajirun. So the Aus and the Khazraj as these two tribes native to the region, were quickly becoming Muslim. But what was going on with the Jewish tribes? Were they becoming Muslim quickly like the Awas al Not at all. And we need to analyze why that is and how those Jewish tribes received the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and how they navigated this new order that was established by the arrival of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. How did they receive him? What was their attitude towards him? This is what we want to explore today insha'Allah. We want to look at some of the examples of the animosity showed by some of the Jewish tribes towards the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and how that hostility became an impetus that would trigger long-term consequences for them and the Ummah that will unfold as we go through the Sira into the second year and beyond. So having reached this juncture in the Sira, we have to offer a disclaimer. We are in the year 1444, corresponding to the year 2022. And we are detailing a historical narrative that unfolded 1440 something years ago. So I shouldn't need to issue any disclaimers, but it is what it is and here we are. We as Muslims treat every single individual person with respect and dignity, whoever they are, whatever their religion is, whatever they believe. If they are treating us with respect, we treat them with respect. If they treat us with disrespect, we respond in a way that is best while asserting our own Dignity. The point is we treat people as they are. We don't treat them just according to the collective identity. So at the same time, though that's how we treat individuals, we don't apologize for studying and relating historical events described, not just in the seerah, but also in the Holy Quran. If we cannot learn about the conflicts of the past in our history, whether they are theological conflicts, different beliefs among different groups, or political conflicts. If we can't talk about these things because they're sensitive in today's environment, then essentially that means we cannot learn the Qur'an either. Because the Qur'an addresses these issues and the Qur'an addresses not just individuals, the Qur'an addresses collectives. We don't judge an individual solely by the collective actions of their people. We judge them for what they do. They're responsible for themselves. They stand alone on the day of judgment and are accountable for themselves. However, there are collectives. There are communities. And Allah addresses these collectives. Ya Bani Israel, it's a collective, right? So we are relating these stories that are in the Qur'an, that are in the sunnah, that are in the seerah that address individuals as well as collectives with the disclaimer that these are historical accounts that are also in revelation itself, Qur'an and sunnah So to start with that we actually want to go backwards in time a little bit. If we want to talk about how the Jewish tribes receive the Prophet ﷺ and their attitudes towards him after his arrival, we actually need to go backwards in time a little bit some several years before the Hijrah and go back to a story that is mentioned in Suratul Al-Baqarah, uh, an account or an event that took place between some of the Jewish tribes in Yathrib of the time and one of the tribes. So technically it wasn't in Yathrib, it was actually in Khaybar, but this is the general area. We go to Surah Al-Baqarah, which tells this story. And it is the verse where Allah Ta'ala reminds the Jewish communities as well as the Muslims of a historical event. Allah Ta'ala says, <laughs> Allah says, And when there came to them a scripture from Allah confirming that which is in their possession, what they have, though before that, this is the event, though before that they were asking for a clear victory over those who disbelieved. And when there came to them that which they recognized to be the truth, they disbelieve therein Indeed the curse of Allah is on the disbelievers What is that verse about? What was that event? Well Ibn Abbas عنهما, tells us the story He says that in this time prior to the Hijrah Many years before The Jews of Khaybar were fighting the tribe of Ghatafan So this is one of the sub-tribes and when they met in battle, the Jewish tribe was defeated. So the Jewish tribe made a du'a to Allah Ta'ala, saying, We ask you by the right of the unlettered prophet that you promised to send to us at the end of the time, at the end of time, that you give us victory against them. So Wakanu. يَسْتَفْتِحُونَ يَسْتَفْتِحُونَ here means seeking victory and the meaning of seeking victory here is they're saying uh, "O oh Allah, ummi, right, by the right of the unlettered prophet whom you promised to send as the final prophet to us at the end of time give us victory over these people that was the dua, that was the istiftah, and when they met the tribe of Ghatafan in battle again They called out with this du'a and they defeated the Ghatafan tribe. They won the battle after that du'a. So here they are getting beat by the Ghatafan tribe. They make this du'a mentioning this prophet, this final prophet. And then they get victory over the Ghatafan tribe the next time they're in battle. So when the Prophet was later sent to humanity they disbelieved in him SallAllahu Alaihi Wasallam and so Allah revealed this verse responding to them. Though before that, Allah says, they were asking for a clear triumph over those who disbelieved. And when there came to them that which they know to be the truth, they disbelieved therein. Indeed, the curse of Allah is on the disbelievers. So the essential problem is that they assumed that the final prophet would be one of their own, of Bani Israel. But when all of the signs appeared, confirming what is in the scriptures, and he came to them, and lo and behold, he is not from their people, but from the Gentiles, the unlettered people, they disbelieved in him, and concocted false arguments in order to deny him. And we'll explore a little bit about that. So it does seem that they were if you look at this verse and analyze it, you know, from a psychological perspective, you know, the battle between them and the Ghatufan tribe was over financial stuff. It was over dunya. It could be water rights, trade, money, protection. It's all dunya. So it does appear from an outside observer that they are looking forward to the coming of the coming of this final prophet so they could have this superiority, right? And it, is, it appears that these Jewish tribes were looking forward to this final prophet who would then give them victory over the the Akhazraj because the balance of power had shifted over time because remember we said that according to most of the historical accounts, the Jewish tribes were in Yathrib before the Auslan Chazraj arrived because... If we accept the narrative that they, they all came from the South, they were there first. And they had this relationship where the Aus and the Khazraj were Mawari. They had this clientage relationship, basically subservient and beneath them. But the tables eventually turned and the Aus and Khazraj revolted against them and the balance of power had shifted. So it seems like they're awaiting for this final prophet for dunyawi reasons, to reestablish that power where they're in control and the Aus and the Khazraj are once again under them. So it wasn't necessarily for spiritual guidance and light that they're awaiting this final prophet. It was connected to having power over others. And when the final prophet actually arrives, he's not actually from Bani Israel. He's an Arab. Yet he is proclaiming the primordial way of Tawheed. And the way established by his great forefather Ibrahim alayhis salam. And he fits all of the descriptions in their scriptures. So seeing all of this, they are envious and fearful. And they engage in this you know, this cognitive dissonance, disbelieving and rejecting, while also knowing deep down that he's the real deal. So they have to entertain two contradictory beliefs at the same time, all because they can't accept the reality and they want to hold on to power that's the basic psychology of what was going on so they see very clearly that the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam is given tawfiq from Allah given divine success divine support and they feared that yes <laughs> he is indeed the final prophet to humanity whence the envy because they believe they are Sha'abullah al-mukhtar right? you know, The chosen people in a universal sense Right? People say "Well, How can you deny that they are the chosen people When Allah Ta'ala says in the Quran That he chose them Over the entire worlds And the answer is that that was the case But it was very time specific It was not a universal for all times It was predicated on Them upholding their end of the covenant So they see this and that the message is not given to one of their own, it's given to an Arab. So they're fearful, they're envious. On the one hand, they see all the signs are fulfilled, but at the same time, they're hoping that he's not because it would upset their plans. It would not really work out in their favor. So they're trying to persuade themselves that he's not the real prophet. He's not the real final prophet, even though all of these signs are confirmed in him, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. It's basically cognitive dissonance, and we see a verse in the Quran that describes this. Allah Taala says also in Surah Al-Baqarah, "Wadakathirun min ahl alkitab, lo yaruddunakum min baghi imanikum kuffaran hasadan min 'indi anfusihim min baghi ma tabiyyana lahum alhak." Many of the people of the book long to bring you back into disbelief after your belief through envy that is in their souls after the truth has been made clear to them. Here Ahlul Kitab is referring to the Yahud. It's referring to that initial reception and the attitude of those tribes. It's really shaitani when you think about it because the principle is ar bil kufr. These are people who say they believe in the oneness of Allah Yet they would prefer them to remain idol worshippers over taking the primordial way of Tawheed because that would cause them to lose out in their their struggles for reasserting dominance over the aws and khazraj. It's very shaitanic because a bil-kufri to be pleased with disbelief is disbelief. And we've touched on this a few times in this class and in others, that for you to be satisfied for a person to remain on kufr or for a person to desire that a person go from tawheed to kufr that itself is kufr. It's disbelief to be pleased with a person either remaining on disbelief or falling into disbelief. But here they are wanting, wishing that these people would revert back to their pagan ways Because that would bring things back to the previous norm where they were in control. They were so envious, they would not want them to have the message amongst themselves. So, it is very shaitani in that sense. So, Islam began to spread and more and more people were converting to Islam in this first year of the Hijrah among the Aus and the Khazraj. And these believers of the Aus and the Khazraj and now along with the Muhajirun, they are looking forward to a time when Medina, this new city essentially, will be a harmonious center of iman and aman, of faith and peace and stability. But we see very early on in the seerah, in the, in the Medinan period, that conflicts start to brew. And troubles begin to arise. And it wasn't long after the hijrah that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed verses warning about the hidden elements within the society. The hidden elements of discord. And we see most of these warnings coming in the longest chapter of the Quran, Surah Al-Baqarah. And there's lots of stories in the seerah uh, that mention... Different accounts of the animosity and how it was was, was expressed by individuals from those Jewish tribes uh, to individuals from the Muslim community, as well as to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam directly. And there's way too many stories to mention in, in one session, and we're not going to stretch it out into five or six sessions just telling those stories. There's a lot of them. We'll just mention some of the more prominent ones because they're so. Uh, they're so illustrative of the kind of envy combined with hatred and also cognitive dissonance and desire for things to go back to the old norms. So the Jewish tribes, we can say, they might have welcomed this new peace between the Aus and the Khazraj because they're no longer fighting. They might have welcomed that ending of the war, but they wanted this return to the prior status and that would be really the cause of their downfall. right? All of the things that happened were because of this desire to go back to the old norm, to have that prior status over the Aus and Khazraj. And they were able to exploit that when the Aus and Khazraj were divided, but now the Aus and Khazraj are coming together uh, with, within the bonds of Iman as believers. So that previous status quo is never going to return because what, had, what created the status quo in the past was their division and their idolatry and their jahiliya. Well, the jahiliyyah has now been eradicated. They're now united upon something bigger than tribe. They're united by iman. So there's no restoring the old norm. It's a done deal. Now the Jewish tribes did make the covenant. They did agree to that covenant and sign on to it with the Prophet making it possible for them to possibly share strength in this city. But it also meant that they would agree to incur the cost of any possible war and looking on the horizon, you know, you've got to put yourself in their shoes. If they're here in this situation and they're signing on and agreeing to be partners in the cost and in the manpower for any future war that could arise who are they thinking might be those possible enemies in the future quraish quraish are materially and numerically superior to them so they did sign on to it but the prospect isn't very you know it isn't very pleasing to think of that possibility of going against a numerically stronger force, a materially stronger force. So they definitely disliked this new order even if they were signatories to it. Now Ibn Uzhaq records a very telling story. And this is a story of an elderly Jewish politician from Banu Qaynuqa by the name of Shas Ibn Qais. Shas Ibn Qais was very frustrated by these turns of, of events. He was very frustrated and wanted things to go back to the old norm. He wanted to find some way to exploit the Aus and the Khazraj so that the bond of Iman would be somewhat fractured and they could fall back into their previous tribal disunity. So the story recorded by Ibn Ishaq in his Sirah tells us that Shas ibn Qais. Sent a young man from his tribe, from Banu Qaynuqa, who had a really beautiful voice. And he wanted him to go with his beautiful voice and sit among the Ansar. Who are the Ansar? The Aus and the Khazraj combined. So he wanted him to go and sit with them and with his beautiful voice recite Hijab. What is Hijab? Hijab poetry is a kind of poetry where it's all about insulting another group of people we will call it, you know, a a diss track, you know, just dissing someone. You compose poetry just to brag about how good you are and how worthless your opponents are. And the intention is to make yourself seem brave and fearless and tough and to make your enemies seem like they're cowards and soft and worthless. And you can never underestimate the power of hijab poetry in stirring the emotions. You know, it's it's really hard for us to make that connection today because we're separated from the 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 emotional strings that will be pulled as it would be back then. Uh, I don't know. Back in, in in Mauritania, when I was there, they were really big on poetry, and as masters of poetry and people who were really steeped in the classics. They really felt the emotions of poetry In Mauritania It is very typical in the Mahvara The traditional Islamic schools For children to memorize the Qur'an And also memorize a diwan sitta Or a dawawina sitta Which is not just the mu'allaqat al-Saba' or Al-Mu'alaqat al-Ashar The ten or seven Hanging odes, the Jahili poetry But also the other Collections of Jahili poetry So the Diwan al As they used to call it it's a it's a substantial book and they would memorize this Jahili poetry after memorizing the Quran. And the purpose was to give them this min al-Arab al-Awa'il to give them that uh, understanding of the ancient Arab mentality and how they understood words and their connotations so that they read the Quran and understand the Quran with the same mental frame as an Arab of that time not a modern Arab framing so they would memorize this kind of poetry and they were very familiar with the hijab poetry and this is all stuff that you study there but if you don't grow up with it like that you don't have the same emotional attachment so one time there was two tents you had a group of students here and a group there and uh, one of them had a donkey And the donkey was used to fetch water. They would put the water, go many kilometers out to go to the well and bring it back. And somehow the donkey went missing. The donkey belonged to a group of students from this tent. The donkey goes missing for several hours and someone finds it and it's with the people of the other tent. And they're just doing with it whatever they want to, having them having it carry their own things. So the people in tent A get angry with the people in tent B. Now, if this was, if this was here, what might happen? It would be a shouting match. Maybe, maybe people come to blows if they can't agree. But it, there was no blows at this stage. The people in tent A said, If you don't bring the donkey back to us and apologize, We're going to write hijab poetry insulting you. And when they said that, the people in tent B got so angry at just the prospect of them writing poetry, rhyming, metered poetry, insulting them as a collective. It is that which almost brought them to blows, the threat of the poetry. And that gives you a glimpse of how uh, people would respond to this kind of stuff. And it also sheds light on how the Muslims responded to the people who were composing that hijab poetry later on, who were hired to do so, to write poetry against the Prophet ﷺ and his wives. This tells you why the response was the way it was, because it was the form of media back then. Anyhow, this Jewish man, Shasta bin Qais, sends this young man with a beautiful voice to recite hijab. This is basically hijab poetry that people recognized the, the hijab poetry written by the Aus against the Khazraj, where they big themselves up as the Aus and denigrate the Khazraj. But he didn't just recite the Aus poetry. He would also recite the hijab that was written by the Khazraj during the civil conflict. So he's sitting reciting the Aus poetry, and then he starts reciting the Khazraj poetry in the company of who? The Ansar, the Aus and the Khazraj, who are all sitting together. So he's reciting this, and as he's reciting the Aus poetry, the Aus are hearing the old poems that big them up as a people of bravery and toughness, and they're hearing this, you know, they have memories. They're like, yeah, exactly. And then the Khazraj are hearing this, they're a little unsettled. And then he recites the Khazraj stuff, and it, it switches sides. And now the tensions are rising between the Aus and the Khazraj And basically they start to argue with one another and shout abuses and threats because this one is now insulted and that one's now insulted. And it starts to rekindle old conflicts. It starts to press at these old tribal scars from the conflicts between them. And it got to a point where they were shouting at each other and someone or both of them shouted, "To arms, to arms. And let's go back and get,, you know, get our weapons, get our swords, get our arrows, get our spears, and let's handle this and see who's really tough. So those, those pre-Islamic uh, sentiments were still there. They're still new Muslims, exploited, by this young man reciting the poetry, sent by Shas ibn Qais of Banu Qaynuqa. So they go out to this lava tract, right outside of Medina, and they're aligning in battle rows. That's how they used to do it. You'd have one group on one side, one group on the other, and usually they'd have the mubaraza, where you'd send the best fighter from this group, and the best one from that group, and they'd do uh, a duel between themselves, and then it would be a fight among the group. They get to that point, The Os have all strapped up. The Khazraj have all strapped up again. they made the battle rolls and they're about to go at it again after the conflict had already settled down and after the peace was made and after the Prophet has arrived in Medina uh, as this muhajir. So they go out there and eventually the Prophet hears about this and he goes out to stop this. And he says... O oh Muslims, Allaha, Allaha, when you hear that, Allah, at it means, Ittaqullaha, yani be mindful of Allah, fear Allah, be mindful of Allah, why are you doing this? Will you act as you did in Jahiliyyah? Wa adhurikum, and I'm in your midst, Allah has guided you to Islam, and honored you with it, and enabled you to break from your pagan ways, and saved you, therefore, from kufr, from disbelief. allafa And has united between your hearts. How can you do this? So once he spoke very forcefully in this manner, they were shaken out of that Hamiyah of جَهِلِيَّةَ that, that bigotry and tribal conflict. And they realized that they were riled up by an outside party and led astray. And then hearing the reminder of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi They began to weep and once again the Aus and the Khazraj began to Embrace each other and hug each other as brothers And then they returned to Medina without having come to any blows So we see this story as an example of how they Some of them tried to exploit pre-existing divisions among the Muslims And there's a great lesson in that because Muslims have their divisions right? There's all sorts of divisions because we're human beings. It could be tribal, it could be ethnic, it could be linguistic, it could even be sectarian. And these things exist and there's no, there's no real doing away with many or most of those divisions because it, it is what it is. But you have to be careful from letting outsiders exploit those things. And oftentimes that's what happens. And we see this example right here. Another story of this hostility comes also in the seerah of ibn, ibn Ishaq and Ibn Hisham. And this is a story about another of the Yahud named Rafi' ibn Huraymila. Hurafi' ibn Huraymila is actually uh, an individual about whom Allah revealed ayat, answering him. He, was, he would go to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and challenge him and ask him certain questions. One time, Rafi' ibn Huraymila went to the Prophet wasallam and says, O oh Muhammad, bring forth for us a book that descends upon us from the sky so we can read it directly and break forth for us rivers out of nowhere so that we will then follow you and believe you. So he's giving him a challenge like this. And Allah Ta'ala reveals a verse also in Surah Al-Baqarah responding to this. Is it not that every time they make a covenant, some party among them throws it aside? Nay, most of them do not believe. Rafi also said to the Prophet, ﷺ, O Muhammad, if you are truly a messenger of Allah, as you say, then tell Allah to speak to us directly so we can hear His words. You see this. Jurah, this uh, audaciousness in these challenges. So Allah Taala revealed in response to this man, وَقَالَ الَّذِينَ لَا يَعْلَمُونَ. Allah says, "Those who don't know say, لَوْ لَا يُكَلِّمُنَ اللَّهَ أَوْ تَأْتِينَ آيَةً كَذَلِكَ قَالَ الَّذِينَ مِن قَبْلِهِمْ مِثْلَ قَوْلِهِمْ تَشَابَهَتْ قُلُوبُهُمْ قَدَ بَيَّنَّ الْآيَاتِ لِقَوْمٍ يُقِنُونَ." So. Those who don't know, who don't have knowledge, will say, Why doesn't Allah not speak to us uh, or there not come to us a uh, sign? So said the people before them, who said words of similar import. Their hearts are alike. We have indeed made clear the signs unto any people who hold firm to Iman. So this, these are just a few examples of these challenges and the expressions of animosity and doubt and disbelief. But although we're speaking about some of the animosities among ban- the, the Jewish tribes, it wasn't limited to the Jewish tribes. We, we spoke about Aus and Khazraj, but not everyone's Muslim yet. Among Aus and Khazraj, more and more people are embracing Islam in this first year of the Hijra but there are still people from the and the Khazraj who were not muslim and then among the people of the and the Khazraj you had waverers you had doubters you had people who were fusaq corrupt individuals they're just corrupt they're just people of degeneracy and corruption valama, degenerates and people who had varying degrees of sincerity and these all these people all came together as their own collective and they came to be known as the munafiqun the munafiqun the hypocrites and these are people who lacked sincerity even while they expressed iman we know that there's two types of nifaq the greater nifaq ad nifaqul akbar is when a person professes iman but inwardly they retain kufr they're faking it and in order to basically secure their position, to not lose out on things in the world, uh, or to plot and plan, whatever the motive may be. The minor nifaq is nifaq amali, you know, the person who d- doesn't keep promises, uh, who, who who lies and breaks trust and so on. So among the Aus and the Khazraj, you have these munafiqoon. This, so if we go backwards a little bit, uh, we retrace our steps. We have Aus and Khazraj. We have the three Jewish tribes. We now have the Muhajirun as a, as a group. So that's six groups. The Muhajirun and the Aus and the Khazraj form one collective of known as the Ummah. And they as a collective are Ansar and Muhajirun. So now you have this group. This group known as the Munafiqun, who are embedded among the Muslims but they are not actually Muslims. Now the Prophet wasallam never had to deal with this category of human being while in Mecca because in Mecca there was complete sincerity from anyone who embraced Islam. There was nothing to gain financially, politically, socially by becoming a Muslim in Meccan society with all of that hostility, right? The idea of embracing Islam was uh, not something a person would do To move up socially It would actually take them down socially So the people who Willingly embrace Islam in that environment Are doing so out of pure sincerity But now the Prophet Sallallahu Has arisen as this leader in Medina He now has authority sultā. He has followers He has a place of his own A dar al-Islam So a person in that society has something to gain by professing Islam, even if they're insincere about it. So now there's worldly reasons to become a Muslim, worldly reasons, and that is why these munafiqoon put on this show that they did. When you look at the munafiqoon and their individual identities and stories, what you find is that most of them, if not all of them, had very close ties with the various Jewish tribes, pre-existing relationships of mutual benefit. So just as these tribes are losing out, they're also losing out with the ascendancy of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. But they can't just revolt and rise against him. It's not possible. So they have to find a way to bid their time and exploit weaknesses in the hope that eventually things will crumble and they can reassert power together. That's the basic strategy. Now, among the chief adversaries of the Prophet ﷺ in Medina were two cousins. And these two cousins were the sons of two sisters. But one of them is of the Aus, and the other is of the Khazraj. And each of these adversaries had a lot of influence among their tribe and the first of them is an individual known as Abu Amr of Aus. Abu Amr also known as Abu Amr al-Rahib and he is uh, Abdul Amr ibn Saifi. So uh, Abu Amr Abdul Abdul Amr ibn Saifi is known as the monk and he is of the Aus. People used to call him a monk, but the Prophet Sallallahu says in the hadith mentioned by Ibn Husham, do not call him a monk, call him a transgressor. What's his story? So of the two adversaries, the two that are related to each other, one from Aus, one from Khazraj, Abu Amr of Aus, it's mentioned in the seerah that there was no one in Medina between the Aws and the Khazraj, who had more knowledge about the description of the Prophet SallAllahu Alaihi Wasallam in the scriptures than this individual, Abu Amr. He would befriend the Jews, and he would ask them about their religion and their scripture, and they would explain the Torah to him and mention the description of the final prophet to come to humanity. So he became very familiar with the Jewish tradition and their scripture. And he also went to Sham, to the area of Syria, Greater Palestine. And there in Sham, he sat with the monks, with the Christian community. And he would ask them the very same questions. So after spending time with the Jewish community in the tribes, spending time in Sham, he returns to Yathrib and he announces to the people that he's not a pagan. He is a Hanif. And we talked about who the Hunafah were uh, prior to the prophet's time sallallahu alaihi wasallam he announces himself as a hanif he becomes a monk lives a monk like life in yathrib living a very ascetic life and he claimed to the people that he was waiting for the arrival of that final prophet whom he learned about from the jewish tribes and their scriptures and from the scriptures shared by the monks among the christians so this is how he is presenting himself even before the Prophet Sallallahu arrives in Medina. So what happens when the Prophet Sallallahu appears in Mecca? Because all of this is happening before his appearance, before his bi'tha, Abu Amr is positioned in Yathrib in this monk-like ascetic existence, a self-proclaimed Hanif saying that he's waiting for the final prophet. And now in Mecca comes an individual Reciting the Qur'an With the message of Tawheed As the final messenger Abu Amr didn't even Take the trouble to go to Mecca to meet him He just stayed in Yathrib So what's going to happen now When the Prophet arrives in Yathrib Well the story Told to us in the seerah of Ibn Hisham Is that when the Prophet arrived in Medina Abu Amr did come out to meet him and he asked him some questions. First question was, what do you call to? What is this way that you call to? And the Prophet ﷺ says to him, I come with the, the Hanif way of Ibrahim alayhi He knows that he is a Hanif, or he claims to be. And he says, I come with the Hanif way, the way of Ibrahim. Abu Amr says, I'm on that way too. And the Prophet ﷺ says No, you are not That's so interesting Because this is the first time they're meeting And just from that initial meeting Allah reveals to him The reality of Abu Amr He's making claims He's making claims From this group and that group He claims the way of the Hunafah He lives a certain lifestyle But he's a charlatan He's a fake there's otherworldly interests at play, and not it may not be money, because not everyone who wants dunya wants dunya for money. Sometimes the dunya they want is prestige, and sometimes in some societies, prestige isn't just through money; it's through being seen as unique and being sought after as a special person, right? And that's why you have charlatans and cult leaders. For then, some of these cult leaders in different parts of the world. They're not all loaded with cash and with yachts and cars. Some of them don't have any of that, but they like the cult adoration. They like that atmosphere of being uh, looked up to. And he had a group of followers there. The Prophet says, no, you're not. You're not on the way of Ibrahim. So Abu Amr, he then says to him, you have added to the Hanif way of Ibrahim what is not from it very audacious in making this claim. And the Prophet ﷺ says, I have not done any such thing. I have brought it pure and white, untainted, unsullied. And then Abu Amr says, May Allah cause the death of the liar. May the liar of us be exiled, estranged and alone. And the Prophet ﷺ said, Allah will do that to whomever he wills. He didn't realize it at the time, but he just, he just sealed his fate. It's a done deal for Abu Amr now. And Abu Amr, in the coming months, he sees that his authority is waning. Among his followers, the numbers are diminishing. His little core group of cult followers, more of them are becoming Muslim. And at the end, he only has about 10 core followers in his little cult. So what does he decide to do? He becomes really angry and bitter and wants to leave. And we can say that among the factors that increase that anger and bitterness is the fact that his son became a Muslim. Who is his son? His son is none other than Hanbala al-Ghaseel. Hanbala the companion who who received his ghusl uh, by the angels directly. So Hanbalah is his son, and his son becomes a Muslim, no doubt increasing his anger and bitterness towards the whole situation. So he decides that he's going to leave. Him and his ten followers decide to get out of town. Where does he go? Abu Amr decides of all places, think about this, he's in Medina, he's fed up, he can't really keep his cult following. He wants to just cut his losses. Of all the places to go, he decides to go to Mecca. Oh, he's a Hanif, right? But he's going to Mecca, which is the stronghold of the Mushrikeen. Right? So he goes to the stronghold of the Mushrikeen, claiming to be a Hanif, with his followers. And he stayed in Mecca for years until Fathu Mecca. When it was the time of the opening of Mecca, he knew that he couldn't stay. So what does he do then? He goes from Mecca to Ta'if. He goes to Ta'if and he remains in Ta'if for a while, but you know, we haven't gotten there yet, but most of you are familiar with what happens eventually. Ta'if becomes a stronghold for a while, but then eventually Ta'if is open too. So when Ta'if gets opened, He goes away from Ta'af. Where does he go there? From there he goes all the way to Shem, where he was once a long time before. And there in Shem, he is basically living as an exile, alone, estranged, all by himself, and he dies in that state. So he died exactly as he prayed for. He said, whichever of us is a liar, may they die, exiled, estranged and alone. He was exiled more than once. He was estranged from his own people and he died absolutely alone. That's the result. So this is one of the two. Who's the other who had the animosity? The other is, the other cousin, is none other than Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul of the Khazraj. So these are two cousins. One cousin decided to exile himself The other decided to stay. So Abdullah ibn Ubay bin Salul is of the Khazraj, the cousin of Abu Amr. And like his cousin Abu Amr, he also felt frustrated at the arrival of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. But unlike his cousin Abu Amr, he was not claiming to be a Hanif. He was a pagan. He never changed the ways of his forefathers. And he had a position of power among the Khazraj, and he was honored and revered among them. And his people, one narration says it in a very vivid language that they had just finished stringing the jewels on his crown that they were going to put on his head, crowning him the king and leader of the people of Yathrib. They had just finished this, and then the Prophet وسلم, arrives in Medina. So that's done. That's not going to happen. So you can see why he would be frustrated because he thinks he's about to become a king imagine someone who considers himself worthy of being a monarch and they know all the preparations are underway to crown them king and they're just getting ready for living the life and enjoying the power the prestige and the money and the influence and as that's about to happen all of their hopes are dashed against the wall and it just it ends right there so he realized that the dynamic has changed completely. The political dynamic is not workable for me anymore. I will not be a king. So his people who were about to crown him king ended up becoming Muslim. So they, not only did he lose the opportunity to be king, but the people who were going to crown him king <laughs> just kind of left him to the side and took to the real ruler, the real leader, as they became Muslim. So he felt that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi deprived him of kingship. So he remained a mushrik, but all of his people are becoming Muslim. And he felt that the way to secure his power would to also go with the flow and become a Muslim, at least pretending to be so. So he could bid his time and play the game to be as non-committal as possible. Never really committing himself but not being overt in his hostility either. And undoubtedly his anger and bitterness would have been increased by the fact that his daughter became a Muslim. And we can even argue that the bitterness and anger may have increased even more with the fact that his daughter, whose name is Jamila, gets married. Who does she marry? She marries Hanbalah so the cousin Abu Amr his son becomes a Muslim Abdullah bin Ubay bin Salu's daughter Jamila becomes a Muslim the son marries the daughter Jamila and Alhamdulillah become husband and wife and this must really make him feel bitter and angry so unlike his cousin we said he decided to stay and we're going to hear more and more about him and about some of these other individuals that kind of come under his wing who were also munafiqoon So what we're kind of doing now is tracing out the responses of different groups of people, different collectives looking at some of the overt and the covert hostility that was brewing among some of the discontented people in Medina because that's how you understand what's going to unfold in the next year and at the end of this year and it's going to you ha- you understand from this how Quraysh sought to exploit these fissures these breaks within the community to their own ends so during this year we'll wrap up a couple of things this is the first year of the hijrah and in the seerah works they look at it through a timeline you know what happened in the first year You have large events, major things happening with lots of narrations. And then you have small events that are recorded. You know, This person passed away or this thing happened or this thing was legislated in Sharia. So in this first year of Hijrah where we are, we have As'ad ibn Zurara dying. As'ad ibn Zurara died in the first year of the Hijrah. Now remember that As'ad ibn Zurara was the first of the people of Medina to embrace Islam. And when Mus'ab ibn Umayr of Mecca was sent to Medina to teach the new budding community, he was staying with Asad ibn Zurara. So Asad ibn Zurara, who was really one of the vanguards and the earliest believers in Medina, he passes away in the first year of the Hijrah. You know, it's amazing to think about this sometimes. You know, these are Sahaba and some of them are dying at different stages in the mission and some die after the passing of the Prophet You imagine a Sahabi who dies in the first year of the Hijrah. He didn't experience Badr, he didn't experience Uhud, he didn't experience any of these events because he passed on into the, into the Akhirah. And then you have those who are martyred. Then you have those who survive all the way to the end of the Prophet's life and then die shortly after that. And then you have those who live way on to experience other rulers and fitnas that arise. Allah chooses whomever He wills, whenever He wills. So He died in that first year. In the first year of Hijrah also, we have the legislation of the Adhan. The Adhan is legislated. And there's some narrations which describe how that took place. We also have in the first year of the Hijrah, the meeting between the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and Salman Al-Farisi. We haven't told his story just yet. The story that led him to Medina in the first place, uh, nor have we described the meeting, but that happens in this first year. And some say it happened at the funeral of, of As'al ibn Zura. That's when he got the chance to meet him. Also in the first year, we have the rabbi Hussein ibn Salam becoming Muslim, and we talked about him last week. Now we know him as Abdullah ibn Salam. That Islam of his takes place in this first year of the Hijrah And we're still in the first year So there's still a few more things to happen But we're going to stop here because Next week we open up on a very important lesson On how Quraysh responded to news of the Hijrah And how they sought to exploit some of these divisions Within the society among the Jewish tribes And among some of the discontented among the Munafiqun and from there, we lead up to the stages where Allah eventually gives the permission for the Muslims to engage in martial combat. And that's gonna introduce us to a sub-genre of the seerah that we call al-maghazi, uh, or the accounts of the battles and expeditions. So we're gonna to try to introduce the maghazi as a subgenre of the seerah and look at the wisdom of the Maghazi as this almost separate genre, but included in Sira. We'll look at the wisdom behind that, the importance of knowing the Maghazi, and look at some of the earliest Maghazi and Saraya that took place in the first year of the Hijrah. So we're really at a turning point in the Medinan period where we go from the initial arrival and response to the political changes eventually becoming as they say, kinetic, where the Muslims are forced to respond to certain hostilities and engage with others with political force. So we want to introduce that in a proper way to give it the the proper understanding, Inshallah next week Bidni taala Hada wa sallallahu sallam ala sayyidina Muhammad wa ala adihi wa sahabihi wa sallam Where's your you have three questions. One, I use the word, uh, gentile. Gentile. What's the definition of that? Because I've heard that being used uh, by Yudin. Yeah, so the, uh, Taha is asking about the use of the word Gentile. Last week we talked about that a little bit. Because Allah Ta'ala uses the word Ummi to refer to the Arabs. And when Allah Ta'ala is speaking to or about Bani Israel, the word ummi is used, uh, and they use the word to refer to the Arabs. fil sabil. They would feel that it's okay to just to, to cheat the people who are ummiyun, and that in their usage it means the Gentiles who are the, the the non-Jews. They felt that some of them felt that they were religiously justified to cheat them in business practices. Does the word Gentile also apply to Christians? It would, yeah. So classically, at least in the Jewish tradition, the Gentiles would be any non-Jew. But in the Quranic context, it's when, the, when, when Allah is speaking about the Jewish attitude towards the Arabs, and they refer to the Arabs as ummiyun. it's not just because they can't read and write, it's because they are not Jewish ethnically or religiously, so they call them Gentiles. Yeah.